0: The 8th longest chapter, by word count, in the entire Bible. All 67 verses of Genesis, at chapter 24. We do want to, in many ways, and I do mean this reverently, swallow it whole this morning. But what I want to do to get us started is just read the first act of this covenant romance that comes to us in Genesis 24, the first 28 verses. So what I want to do is read verses 1 through 28, And what we're going to see along the way today is how this substantial text is really quite simple in its point. And perhaps you might be able to discern some of it as I read the first 28 verses. So let us hear now as God speaks to us once again through his covenant word. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that Abraham had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by God, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then... You will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. The time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say... Please let your jar down that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, that I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for my servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led my way in the house to of my master's kinsmen. And then the young woman ran and she told her mother's household. About these things. Let us pray together. Father we thank you that you work all things according to the counsel of your will. That in sickness and sorrow and happiness and health. You are working all things for the good of your people. So we pray that you would take this word of promise. This word of your covenant grace and Do much good to our hearts and souls this morning. That you would free our minds from distraction. That you would arrest our hearts affection. That we might worship you rightly. And trust in you completely. Help me to preach as you say I must with clarity and courage. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. You know, we've had occasion, of course, over the years to go over to people's houses for dinner, Emily and I, and obviously with the kids as well, maybe meet them for the first time or visit a church family for the first time. And almost inevitably, there comes a point in the conversation where they will ask Emily and I, or an individual will ask Emily and I, well, how did you two meet? And I'll inevitably look across the way to Emily with a gleam in my eye because I'm going to inevitably say, well, which story do you want? Because we have differing stories of how we met. Most significant is the time difference between the two stories. Because my account of us first meeting has us meeting for the first time a full two years before her account has us meeting for the first time. Evidently in my memory and experience, she was altogether memorable to me and I was altogether forgettable to her. And, of course, there comes a time in the story where we eventually converge in our disagreements about what actually took place, and we come together. I ask, will you marry me? And she says, yes. And, of course, we come to a chapter today in Genesis 24 that, likewise, shares a story of how a couple met. It's a story of another woman saying yes to a proposal but but surely you know, even we didn't make it all the way through the chapter, but you, you know that this proposal, this pursuit, this subsequent engagement in marriage is quite unlike anything we experience today in our American Western world. You know, I've listened to a number of sermons throughout the years on this text, studied it numerous times, and it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians might come to this text as though it gives to us some sort of divine plan for nabbing a spouse. If you just follow God's prescription of the steps here with Isaac and Rebecca, then you will find a a godly man or a godly woman to marry. But of course, if you come to the text today thinking that's the purpose, you're going to be frustrated by the end. But you know, if you come once again to Genesis expecting yet another story of how God is faithful to his promise, then you're going to come away from this text altogether fulfilled. So, where we left off two weeks ago was at the end of chapter 23. Abraham's wife, Sarah, died at the age of 127. That chapter was occupied primarily with Abraham buying land from Ephron, the Hittite, that housed the cave of Machpelah. And Abraham bought it from Ephron for a king's ransom and he laid Sarah to rest in the cave of Machpelah there in the land of Canaan and why that was so significant and why in many ways the story just slowed down almost to an unexpected abrupt halt was because what Abraham has just received what he has just purchased is a possession in the promised land. And God is already making good by the end of chapter 23, his covenant grace in Abraham's life, because Abraham has a small slice, yes, but a genuine part of the promised land is his possession already. Eventually, of course, God has promised to give him the entire promised land. But part of the problem is, is that now Sarah, the matriarch of the covenant, the queen of the promise, she's died leaving Abraham only one child, the son of promise named Isaac. So kids, you, you might think about, what do you remember as are the, the, the two main parts of the covenant God made with Abraham? Remember, He promised him land, and also people, a nation offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and by this point in Genesis chapter 24 as it turns the page and begins there is some degree of security and stability with the land part of that promise but the family nation offspring part of that promise it still kind of hangs by a thread because once again we find it in Abraham's old age it's resting on one man this man named Isaac the son of the promise and so the entire point of this entire Entirely long chapter is that we would see God provides a wife for the son of promise. Yet again, in Genesis, God is providing according to his promise. And he's providing according to his promise because of his steadfast love. If you look down again at the text, you'll see God's steadfast love mentioned four times in the passage. Some of which we already read. Verse 12, you'll see it. Verse 14, the second time. You see it also, thirdly, in verse 27, and then near the end of the chapter, the servant mentions it again in verse 48. Steadfast love, it's it's this difficult word to translate. We've mentioned this before in recent weeks even. Translate from Hebrew into English because it's got this this fullness that we just can't capture with our English words. At least we can't capture with just one or two words. It's why ESV renders it steadfast love. Other translations call it mercies, great love, loving kindness. It's this complete and covenantal love. This forever and full love. This lasting and loyal love it's the kind of love that's just immense it's overwhelming it's all consuming it knows no height no depth no length no no breadth and it's god's steadfast love that works his promise brings it to fulfillment in the life of Not just Abraham, but of course, Isaac as well this morning. So, God's steadfast love is going to punctuate the passage for us as we think about the three main characters in the story. So, first, we're going to see God's steadfast love to Abraham. Then God's steadfast love in Rebekah. That's the major part of the text, verses 10 through 61. And then verse 62 through the end, God's steadfast love for Isaac. So, a steadfast love to Abraham is how the text begins. Look again at verse 1. You'll notice Abraham's old... He's rich, he's advanced in years, and he's earnest, he's urgent. He's got something on his mind as he's facing down the tunnel of his life, wondering if death is going to come soon. And this is his need. Look at verse 2 through 4. He calls his greatest servant to him, says, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear before the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. So he's earnest to see God begin to fulfill this promise to to bring about a multitude of offspring. He needs a grandson if the, the promised seed is going to continue. And if he's going to get a grandson, of course, his son needs a wife. And he's rightly earnest to get a wife from His family, that's quite a distance away. He's not just going to grab a wife for Isaac from the pagan people there in the land of Canaan. So he pulls his most trusted servant. We have no idea who this man is. doesn't ever tell us in the entire chapter the name of this most trusted servant of Abraham. And he says, put your hand under my thigh. That's this kind of significant sign of this covenant oath that he's requiring of the servant. Go get a wife from my homeland for my son. But you notice in verse 5 that the the servant has a, a question about his mission. Look at what he says. Well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? So kids, you probably want to see at this moment, because of Abraham's being advanced in years, being old in age, the servant seems to think, That by the time he gets to Abraham's homeland and comes back, Abraham might be dead. So he needs the fullness of his marching orders to know what's going to happen. What if I do find a woman? But she doesn't want to come all the way back here. Well, should Isaac then leave the promised land and go? Well, if you just glance down again at verse 6 through 8, Abraham is clear. God's going to provide. Isaac may not leave this land. She must come here. And perhaps what you want to see about Abraham's demand and expectation of his future daughter-in-law's faith is that it's somewhat like his was back in Genesis 12. You remember that Abraham likewise had to leave his homeland, leave his family to journey into the promised land. And in the same way, this future wife or his son must... Forsake all her family, her homeland, in order to come to the promised land. And even participate in the covenant promise. Verse 9 says, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Steadfast love to Abraham. This is the mission that the servant is on. And of course, it's going to come ultimately to fruition. And God's steadfast love in Rebecca in the next major section of this story. A few of our children right now are very much into Disney's old Aladdin movie. And if you've ever seen that movie before, you know there's this scene. I guess it's somewhere in the middle of the movie that the title character Aladdin, by the power of magic, has taken on this identity of Prince Ali, this incredibly wealthy and strong and powerful prince who's coming into the land to steal the heart and grab the hand of the princess. And so, as they come in, there's this great song, there's this great possession, all kinds of animals, all kinds of servants, all kinds of riches, all kinds of uh, a major procession to demonstrate his wealth and his power. And that kind of a wealthy caravan is what departs Abraham's tents and makes its way to Abraham's homeland. Look at verse 10. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, it's been a while since we mentioned camels. But children, you might remember months back we talked about how camels were really significant animals in the ancient world they were not just a a luxury transportation vehicle they were indeed a sign of wealth it was something akin to the ancient form of a rolls royce and for a man to have 10 camels that he can just send off with his servant was a sign of his immense power his uh, his immense wealth and not just that the servant is taking isn't he All kinds of riches, all kinds of expensive gifts that we're soon going to see in the remainder of the chapter. So he's going to go to Abraham's homeland and immediately the servant's going to attract attention. He's going to be a servant that is bringing a master's or doing the master's bidding that is full of power and full of of strength. He's going to the city of Nahor. As best we can tell, that's about 500 miles northwest of where Abraham probably was at that time in Hebron. If you wanted an idea of what that would look like, it's pretty much equidistant to, and even on the same kind of geographical trajectory, if we left McKinney, Texas today and just started walking towards St. Louis, Missouri. Eventually, we're going to get there, and eventually the servant gets to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and look what happens in verse 11. The camels are tired, so they kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, at the time when the women go out to draw water. And there's a number of devices that the author uses in this story to, frankly, up the tension and communicate the romance of this account. There's all kinds of unexpected illusions that happen in this passage and one of which is here this verb actually for the camels kneeling down is the same verb used throughout the passage for blessing so it's as though the camels are coming into the country and they're kneeling down preparing to bless those whom they meet and in the same way the servant he of course is kneeling down himself to pray for blessing look at verse 12 through 14 oh lord god of my master abraham Surely it should be instructive for us that the servant is praying here. Just as he's arriving into the place of his mission. He's praying immediately, isn't he? For blessing. I wonder when the last time was that you begged the Lord for blessing. You begged that the blessed God would indeed shower his favor and grace upon you. You know, perhaps it's a point of self-examination for us that we need to consider so often in our times of need, not just hours go by before we pray for blessing, days go by, weeks go by, and that kind of slow impulse, doesn't it reveal for us our our self-reliance, Now we're trusting really ultimately in our own wisdom and strength. And it's only when we come to the end of our wisdom and strength, then we'll actually depend on God's wisdom and strength. So much better, isn't it? What the servant does here is from the beginning, right at the outset, immediately he bows his knee and prays for blessing. Even he prays for a sign, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to ask for a drink of water. And let the first one that comes to me, first woman that comes to me, who says, yeah, I'll give you a drink of water and I'll also... Give water to your camels. Let that be the one. And in the movement of the passage, as he's praying these words, the text says, look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold. And you might want to know behold oftentimes in Old Testament narrative. It has this kind of stunning providential reality. I used to say to children in my youth ministry days past, probably a way to translate it that would somewhat be helpful in these kind of stories as well. Look at it, Look who just happens to show up as he's praying. Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. She came out. Her water jar was on her shoulder. So here we have... As he's praying for blessing, as he's praying for a sign, we have someone from Abraham's kinsman, someone from his kindred that's coming, and she's drawing water at the evening time when women would often come out to draw water. So the servant, of course, after she grabs water, he runs up to her. You can kind of sense his urgency and his haste. He, he runs up to her and look at verse 17. Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Uh, the word there is actually, please give me a little swallow. We'd say today, Can I have just a sip of water? And she says, of course, sure. Drink, my Lord. Verse 18. Verse 19. She says, I'll get the camels too. And of course, if you didn't have the text in front of you and you're hearing this story and she leans in the jet, yeah, have a a sip of water. Everyone's kind of waiting with bated breath. Well, is she going to freely offer? To water the camels as well. And of course she does it. She says in verse 19. I will draw water for your camels also. Until they have finished drinking. You know earlier this week. I was helping one of our children with a math problem. That had stumped him. And it was one of those word problems. Where it's not so much numbers. That was tripping him up. As the the story that hides the math equation. In it. Around these images and words. And to give you an idea here of what's going on with Rebecca, you need to understand a few things about why the servant is so attracted to her. First, if you go back to verse 16, uh, we're told about Rebecca's beauty. It says that she, of course, was very attractive in appearance. You you might remember that Sarah, uh, the original matriarch of the covenant, she too was stunningly beautiful in appearance not just do we need to notice rebecca's beauty but also her virginity verse 16 ends that she had known no man she was a maiden which means she was of marrying age and of course that's important isn't it because any child that would come from her and isaac would be pure would be indeed one that belongs to the promised family alone. But what's fascinating in this text is when it comes to the camels and the water, it's less Rebecca's beauty and virginity as much as Rebecca's industry that's emphasized. So here's the word picture that you want to understand. This mathematical equation to recognize what's actually going on here in this scene. We've got ten camels. So children, see if you can follow along with this. You've got ten camels. At the end of that kind of a journey, each camel would drink 25 gallons of water. Okay, so how many gallons of water must Rebecca draw from the well? 250 gallons of water. Now, the average jar that a woman at this time would hold on her shoulder to bring water to and fro the well would be three gallons. So, how many trips is Rebecca in all likelihood having to make back and forth to water these camels? At least 80 trips. Probably. And if you know your water weight well, you know that a gallon of water weighs 8.34 pounds. Okay? So how many pounds of water is Rebecca getting ready to haul to these camels? Well, if your math is right, and I guess really if my math is right, I think that means she's hauling in the course of this time, however long it took, 2,085 pounds worth of water to water these camels so maybe you begin to understand why this was the sign why this was the test that the servant was asking of the Lord because no ordinary woman would have wanted to haul that kind of water for that number of camels for a man she didn't even know and of course look at verse 21 the servants watching intently the whole thing he gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not and of course, by the end, he's convinced. This is the one, this is the woman. So he's taking up all of these riches, these gifts in his arms, and he goes to her, if you notice, in verse 23 and says, please tell me whose daughter you are, okay? So the, the, the sign, if you will, has been fulfilled, but he wants to know if she, of course, comes from Abraham's family. And then the text moves on from emphasizing her industry to emphasizing Rebecca's hospitality. Because she says, yes, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, who's Abraham's brother. Also that, she says, yes, come and, and rest at our house. Verse 25, we have plenty of straw and fodder, room to spend the night. So it's at this point, the servant knows, I have found the one. Now, I just need to close the deal. of course, again, this servant notices devotion. He prays immediately, worships the Lord. Verse 26 through 27. He bowed down his head and worshiped Yahweh and said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So he knows, doesn't he? God has done it. And the appropriate response is prayerful praise. You know, I I do hope that you believe God governs all things. The Bible is so clear that God governs all his creatures and all their actions. But I also hope that you know how understanding and believing that truth gives you all kinds of fuel, all kinds of grounds for thanksgiving and praise to God because every single circumstance you face... Every single event that happens, even every single conversation you have, God is moving and directing for your good and the fulfillment of his promises. So many reasons every single day that he gives us that we might praise him just as this servant is doing in his prayer. Well, you'll notice in verse 28, Rebecca runs off to the household and she tells her mother's house, look at all this stuff that just happened. And then another man enters the scene, her brother named Laban, who's going to become somewhat integral to the story of Genesis as things continue. You'll see in verse 30 and 31, as soon as he saw the ring, that's actually a nose ring that the servant gave to Rebekah, and the bracelet on his sister's arms. And he heard the words of Rebekah, this is what happened to me. Look what he says in verse 31 to the servant. Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? And it's somewhat hard to know Laban's motives at this moment. Because verse 31 makes it seem like, as he's invoking the covenant name of God, that of course, he is not just part of Abraham's family. He's part of Abraham's spiritual family. But if you notice in verse 30, it almost has a more ominous tone, doesn't it? That maybe it was less the spiritual connection and the possibility of riches That motivates Laban in this moment as what seems to really catch his eye are the expensive gifts, this expensive jewelry that Rebecca is now wearing. Uh, Whatever it is, he says, hey, come inside. It's time to eat. It's time to fellowship together. And what the servant says is, hold on a second. He's again, he's urgent, he's excited, he, he needs to relay the entire narrative, even before he met Rebekah, to Laban and his family before he's going to eat. And that's essentially what happens in verse 33 through verse 49 is just recounting everything we just saw. Just says it all almost in the exact same language, once again in detail, so they might know exactly what happened. By the end of his telling, before he sat down to eat lunch, eat dinner, whatever the meal was, he puts the question, he makes the proposal, if you will, to Rebecca's family. Look at verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, Tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And maybe some of you men can somewhat sympathize with the servant's emotions at this point. Perhaps when you asked for your future wife's hand in marriage from your future father-in-law at the time, he made you sweat it out a bit before he gave you his blessing and gave you his word of affirmation that you indeed could marry his daughter and perhaps that's what's going on with the servant here right now wondering if after all of this they're still going to say no but look at what laban and rebecca's father say in verse 50 and 51 the thing has come from the lord We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her hand and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So you you do see that they recognize God's dealings in this circumstance. They essentially say, Hey, God's done it. It's so clear, it's so obvious to us that God has done this. Who are we to stop the Lord from doing this? Rebecca. May go with you. So in the subsequent verses. If you scan your eyes through it. The man finally sits down to eat. He gives him even more gifts. He goes to sleep that night. And then he wakes up in the morning. Still earnest. Still excited. And he says. All right. It's, it's time to get going. And surely some of you can sympathize with Rebecca's family at this moment. Because they're very much saying. Hold on a second. Yeah. You're wanting to leave already? Because of course at that time. The vast majority of Rebecca's family. would never see her. Again, and here is the servant suddenly appearing the day before, and then within a matter of hours, really, saying it's time for us to depart. And if you went back and looked at all the previous verses after verse 28 to this point, really, in the text, you'll notice that Rebecca has been a silent character in the whole story. The kids, you might wonder, what's Rebecca thinking about all this? Surely she did excitedly report the events to her mother's household. But what does she think about potentially leaving her home, going far away, and marrying a man that she's never met? Well, she speaks up once again, doesn't she? As the family says, well, we're just going to ask Rebecca what she wants to do. She wants to leave now, or she wants to wait at least 10 days to remain with us longer. So they called, look at verse 58, Rebecca, and said to her, Will you go to this man? And she said, in Hebrew, elech. There's one word. I will go is what the ESV translates it as. Probably better said in our kind of English language and connotation today. She says, let's go. So you see something, don't you, of, of Rebecca's faith. Immediately, spontaneously saying, yes, I will go. I will forsake everything to go where the Lord is calling me. And I wonder if you've ever had that kind of experience of God's leading in your life. This sudden, unexpected event arises. This sudden, difficult decision comes. And yet it's so manifestly clear that it's of the Lord. Was there still a sense of hesitancy to follow, even though it required sacrifice? Or did you, like Rebecca say... Let's go. So off she goes. This is God's steadfast love in Rebecca, steadfast love to Abraham. God's providing a wife for his son of the promise. And now, of course, we want to give our attention, in the last few verses, to his steadfast love for Isaac. So, kids, what do you know about Isaac at this point in Genesis? Of course, we really don't know that much about Isaac, do we? Certainly compared to the other patriarchs in Genesis, we're not even going to get to know that much about Isaac. He's the miraculous child of the promise. He trusted in his father to such a degree that he laid down on the altar when God had called Abraham to sacrifice his son. Uh, We do know by this point, he's at least, Isaac is at least 37 years old. He might even be closer to 40 at this time. He's not married. You'll see in verse 62, he's living this nomadic life in the Negev. So he's no longer in his father's tents. He's kind of struck out on his own. Verse 63 also seems to give us a sense of his spirituality and piety before the Lord. Because look at what he's doing in verse 63. He went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And that word meditate, it's it's kind of a hard one also to translate. It can mean everything from just strolling along the way to prayerful meditation. And I think it's probably better to understand it as prayerful meditation in the context of the passage and in the point of the passage. I think we're meant to see something here of of Isaac's genuine trust and devotion in the Lord. It seems to be an ordinary part of his life as he goes out in the cool of evening to prayerfully meditate on his covenant king. And again, you want to see the expertise of the author in weaving together this story of covenant romance. Because if you look at the end of verse 63 and the beginning of verse 64, you see the same verb is used of Isaac and Rebecca. They they lifted up their eyes. It seems to have this connotation it seems to have this picture that it's painting for us that at the very same moment across the way in that desert-like land they both lift up their eyes and look on one another and funny enough Rebecca lifts up her eyes verse 64 and when she saw Isaac she dismounted from the camel the word is more literally she fell from the camel Maybe he himself was strikingly handsome, altogether rugged in his attraction. Whatever it is, you'll see she asks in verse 65, who's this man? The servant says, that's my master. It almost has this tone of love at first sight. God is moving and weaving things together. There's such a certainty And affection even from the beginning. And we know partly that's what's in her mind. Because at the end of verse 65. She took her veil and covered herself. Veiling oneself in such a moment was a badge of betrothal. It was was a badge of, of marriage. And fascinating isn't it? It's fascinating that in this entirely long chapter. That's so full of the pursuit and the proposal. That is made towards Rebecca. Their marriage, Isaac and Rebekah's marriage, it's just mentioned in one verse. Do you see that in verse 67? Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And we don't want to undersell the significance of where they consummate their marriage in Sarah's tent. Because you don't understand Genesis rightly. If you don't rightly see. As we've mentioned already a few times this morning. Sarah as the matriarch of the covenant. As the queen of the promise. And symbolically there. That matriarchal tent. It's empty. There's no hope of more children. But now in God's kindness. As he's provided according to his promise. And in the power and mercy of his steadfast love. You have a new patriarch. And a new matriarch of the promise come together in that very tent. Because of course, as the story moves on, Isaac is going to become the patriarch on which the story focuses. Rebecca is going to become the matriarch. We have a new prince and princess of the promise. God is continuing to provide according to his covenant promise as he's now providing a wife for the son of promise. One of my favorite preachers, and certainly one of the better known preachers in England in the 17th century, was a man named John Flavel. He was a man that knew great uncertainty and hardship. In 1662, he lost his pulpit. He lost his income along with 2,000 some other ministers in the Church of England. They were ejected from their pulpits because they couldn't subscribe in a clear conscience to the entirety of the Book of Common Prayer. And so, Flavel was ejected from his pulpit. He continued to preach in secret and hold these secret meetings. Even famously, one time, he disguised himself as a woman on horseback to get to this church gathering where he would preach the gospel and administer baptism And for years in the 1660s and 1670s, the authorities pursued him. They tried to silence him. Even to one point, the public burned him in effigy. Such were their feelings for John Flavel. And as his preaching ministry drastically reduced in those years, his writing ministry drastically increased. And he wrote this incredible number of works, many of which continue to minister to saints in Christ today, the most famous of which remains in print, and it's called the Mystery of Providence, and he wrote it in 1678. It was really little more than his meditation on Psalm 57:2, which ends by saying, "He performeth all things for me." And it was from that one verse that Flavel took this doctrinal devotion, this exhortation to Christians like you and me. He said it is the duty of the saints, especially in times of straits. To reflect upon the performance of providence in all the states and through all the stages of their lives. So kids, what he's saying is no matter the circumstance, Christians should remember and reflect on the performance, the actions, the deeds, the works of God's providence towards them. And surely the nation of Israel, the original recipient of this story, wandering in the wilderness... Would they not have heard of God's provision once again according to his promise and not have been encouraged to reflect upon the performance of God's providence? If he was faithful in this stunning way all the way back in Genesis chapter 24 to secure promise offspring for the promised family, he continues to provide according to his promise today. Will he not continue to provide according to his promise In the future. And so what I want to do as we begin to close. Is to try to reflect even further. On the performance of God's providence. As it's not just revealed in this text. But even in our own lives. God provides a wife according to his promise. And surely what we find out about God's character in this story. Is that we are to trust his providence. That's the first of two points I want you to consider and meditate on as we close. Living in God's covenant grace means trusting in his providence. And you might not have noticed. I mean, the text is so full, isn't it? But God actually doesn't speak an audible word in this entire passage. Which is altogether striking, isn't it? Because we've seen God speak plenty of times in Genesis up until this point. It's almost as though he has no problem splitting the heavens and speaking directly to this family of promise. But here... It's silence. But that silence doesn't remove his providence, does it? You see, again, look at verse 48. The servant recognizes the Lord's dealings in these matters. As he's recounting the story to Rebecca's family, he says in verse 48, Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take this bride for his son. He led me by the right way, even though I never heard exactly from him. Every step on the journey to Nahor, he directed. Every conversation, word and phrase around that well, he oversaw. All of the hospitality and kindness and willingness within the family, he was moving. I'm sure many of you can recall a time in your life, and perhaps it's even now, isn't it? Maybe God seems silent that you still trust in his providence, knowing that he is working in billions and billions of ways that you don't even know all for your good. I pray that it would trust you in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of maybe even difficulty, that you too, just like this servant of the Lord and just like Abraham himself, you too can trust in God's providence and Speaking of Abraham, it's a text also, isn't it, that calls us to live by God's promise, not just trust in his providence, live by God's promise. Yahweh doesn't speak in the passage, but Abraham does. In fact, this is the last time you get to hear Abraham speak in the entire Bible, verse 6 through 8. And notice again how to the very end of his life, the very end of his words in Scripture, Abraham still is living by God's promise. Look at just verse 7. He said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. It's God's promise that's guiding his decision-making even in this moment. It's God's promise and the certainty of the, the family dwelling in the land of promise that causes Abraham to say, no, Isaac you can't leave the land of promise. He's the son of promise. You must go find a bride that will come and participate in the promise with him. And I'm sure that some of you might be facing this kind of a significant decision. Maybe in recent weeks you've had to face a momentous decision in your home. To what degree did God's promise inform that decision? Uh, What you see here clearly with Abraham is God's promise. His promises give clarity and confidence and courage to what Abraham is doing as he follows the Lord. Maybe as you're facing something along the way right now, having to prayerfully meditate upon what decision you would make, uh, you must again return to his word of promise. Remember and reflect upon his promises that you too might have clarity and courage. Confidence in what it means to follow God fully according to his promise. God provides a wife according to his promise for his son of promise. That's the entire point. But I do hope that you you can't get too far into this passage. Too long into a meditation on this passage before you can't help but think of many centuries in the future. When God would send another angel to another virgin. When God would send another angel to another maiden who likewise would promote and advance the promised seed of Abraham. To another virgin who like Rebecca who said, I will go. Young Mary said, here I am, the Lord's servant. She too gave birth, didn't she, to a son of promise. In fact, she gave birth, didn't she, to the son of promise, Jesus Christ. And you do know, don't you? The father provided a bride for that son of promise too. The church, which Christ Jesus bought with his own blood. And you do know too. Just as Isaac lifted up his eyes and looked upon his bride with immediate affection, so too does the son of promise lift up his eyes upon his people with everlasting, steadfast love. So we too today, as we live in Jesus Christ, trust in God's providence. We live by God's promise because Christ has come. To fulfill all of the covenant promises that were made in Abraham. That by faith in Jesus Christ as we read earlier even today from Galatians chapter 3. That we by faith are Abraham's offspring. So what then does it mean for us to live? To trust in God's covenant grace today? Doesn't it mean little more than trusting in Jesus Christ? And living by Jesus Christ. Because he is the provision. He himself is the promise. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for your steadfast love that knows no limit. Steadfast love that you have poured out upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to trust in you with diligence and devotion. May we too, by faith, be included in Abraham's family, that we too might be able to call him our Father in the faith. Let us learn. Let us feel, let us experience even the gaze of Jesus Christ who looks upon us with love this day as we are apart from one another. And so minister to us and comfort us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We do want to continue in our time.